I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. British public spending is being cut and the defence budget is not immune. What will this mean for our future military deployments? Overall, we retain, as I say, a broad spectrum capability. There is nothing overwhelmingly embarrassing in terms of what we've given up. The Palestinian leadership is preparing to call for a United Nations resolution declaring Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem illegal. What are the chances of this passing? It would merely be um, a way of embarrassing Israel, of driving a wedge between Israel and the, and the international community. We look ahead to the G20 finance ministers meeting in South Korea. Will there be any agreement on currency manipulation or bank capital levels? It's not clear whether we've yet come to a point where there's going to be a more united front than we've seen before uh, against China in G20. And we get the latest on the ongoing Vatican money laundering case. It'll be the first case where the Vatican has decided to seek redress through the Italian courts. You're listening to World Weekly with me, David Blair. I'm joined in the studio by James Blitz, our diplomatic editor, and on the line with Tobias Buck in Jerusalem, Christian Oliver in Seoul, and Guy Dinmore in Rome. Turning first of all to the defence review that's just been announced here in Britain, the UK armed forces are facing the biggest defence cuts since the Cold War. So where does this leave our future military options? James, to what extent was this a cost-cutting exercise and to what extent was it about strategy? Well, there's no question that it was driven by budgetary problems and cost-cutting. We have in the UK a huge budget deficit of about 11% of GDP, And the Ministry of Defence also has a huge budgetary overhang, a black hole, because it bought loads and loads of equipment over the last decade without actually having the money to cover it. So a very considerable consolidation had to happen. The main question is, having pushed through all those cuts, did we have a kind of coherent picture of what British defence is about at the end? And I think to some degree we did. I think what drove these decisions by by David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, was the need basically to not drop any major capabilities that it looks like were unprepared for the future. I think what's driven all the thinking in this review is that we just don't know what the major threats are going to be over the next five years. Is it going to be cyber? Is it going to be state-on-state warfare, perhaps prompted by an Iran crisis? Is terrorism going to sort of resurge? And so what's happened is we... We've, we've, we haven't cut any major capability that stops us doing any of this stuff. But in order to, to, to make that decision, we've also had to come up with some very messy compromises. Can you list some of those messy compromises? What's the messiest of them all? Well, the messiest unquestionably is that we have ended up building two aircraft carriers over the next uh, few years but we are going to have to mothball one of them and we're then almost going to have to sell it even though it's going to cost us two and a half billion pounds to build it Um, the issue there was that it would have actually because we've started building these carriers it would have actually cost us more to cancel one of them than to build it so that's one of the compromises Mm. but people also say well at Mm. least it leaves us with some potential for heavy state-on-state warfare capability in the the 2020s a second huge problem is that we've 
completely scrapped the Nimrod MR4 reconnaissance plane, which was a project on which we'd already spent in the UK three billion pounds. Not a single, and these planes were just about to come into service, but we've we've, we've dropped it to, to, to save running costs. But that doesn't give us a lot of the capability we need to actually protect our independent nuclear deterrent. Mm. So these are the kind of compromises mm. we've made. But in order to preserve this broader picture of a full spectrum capability. Mm-hmm. And on the question of the nuclear deterrent, is it settled now that Trident will be replaced? Yes, it will. We are going to retain an independent deterrent. But what has happened is that the government has sought to squeeze money and costs out of the programme to replace the four submarines that carry the Trident D-5 missiles. So the first of these new submarines is not actually going to come into service until 2028, rather than around 2024. Now, the compromise, the issue there is that the submarines we currently have, the Vanguard submarines, are coming to the end of their natural lives. And a lot of people in the Navy think that you just can't continue to keep these in service. So the risk by extending the life of these submarines is that they might break down and you might have a lack of capability. But the assurance has been given that this won't happen, although I do think there will be debate on that in the future. Mm. And what's the general feeling among the armed forces top brass? Do they think they've escaped less badly scathed than they feared they would be? Or do they think that this is a review which has cut too deeply? I think the view is that They have broadly escaped. It has been very, very painful, especially, for example, for the Air Force, which has seen Mm. a significant reduction in the number of fast jets that Mm. we will have, and also for the Navy, which will see a reduction of the surface fleet. The Army has probably come off best because it's in Afghanistan. Mm. David Cameron just didn't want to cut Army Mm. numbers. Overall, we retain, as I say, a broad-spectrum capability. There is nothing overwhelmingly embarrassing in terms of what we've given up. Nobody can turn round to the UK and Mm. say, right, you no longer do state-on-state warfare. You no longer do stabilisation of the Mm. kind that you do in Afghanistan. You are no longer committed to fighting terrorism, and you are prepared for this thing of cyber warfare. But overall, we are very thinly stretched across these capabilities, and it will be tested over time as to whether we are really properly prepared for any kind of surprise problem that emerges in the next few years. Has this clearly moved us down the military league tables? Are we, are we still in the France league? In one sense, we haven't. Two key things have happened. One, we are still above 2% of GDP in terms of defence spending, and that keeps us in the top four in the world, uh, China, the United States, uh, and France among them, in terms of defence spending. That's the good news. But we have a lower capability. We will not be able to send 45,000 troops into a hot warfare situation in the way we did in Iraq in 2003. We'll have a significantly reduced capability. So we've, we can do less of what we did, but we haven't had a, a complete adjustment which really puts us down among the, the Europeans in general terms, which is what the government wanted to avoid. Mm. James, thank you very much. Uh, turning now to the issue of the Middle East peace process, um, Palestinian leaders are looking perhaps to the United Nations for a resolution on the future of Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, where does the peace process stand now? Tobias, are you there in Jerusalem? Yes, I am. <laughs> Um, Assuming that the impasse over the settlement issue is not broken, what options do the Palestinians now have? 
Well, the Palestinian leadership is clearly thinking about, uh, in one way or the other, internationalizing the Middle East conflict. Uh, of course, it always has been uh, uh, a big issue at the UN, uh, a big issue for European countries and for the US in particular. But what the Palestinians are thinking about now is to get some kind of UN resolution that would give them uh, political backing. Now, the original idea, which has been around for quite a while, is that the Palestinians would ask the UN Security Council to uh, essentially recognize a Palestinian state in the borders of 1967. Uh, that is still an option that is on the table, though one that probably can, will only really surface uh, next year or at a moment when Israel is even more isolated than it is now. For, for now, what the Palestinians are thinking about is trying to introduce a resolution at, at the Security Council um, that would formally declare uh, Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and in occupied East Jerusalem illegal. What chance would such a resolution have of actually passing? That's very difficult to say now. Of course, the U.S. has a very long tradition of vetoing any U.N. Security Council resolution that is critical of Israel or that makes life difficult for Israel. What the Palestinians are saying, though, is that it is longstanding U.S. policy uh, that they are opposed to uh, Jewish settlements. And though there might be some ambivalence on the issue of whether they're illegal or not, it would certainly be quite difficult for... Uh, the U.S., or so the Palestinians believe, to veto a resolution that targets specifically the settlements, just because uh, we have had so many statements from the U.S. President, from the Secretary of State, that have clearly identified settlements as one of the prime obstacles to peace in the Middle East. So the Palestinians have the option of using the UN Security Council to turn up the heat on Israel. Um, aside from that, what other options do they have if we assume that the direct peace talks are not going to resume? Well, the Palestinians um, have been basically talking about the same ideas for, for many years now. There is the sort of um, big bang solution, which would mean uh, dissolving the Palestinian Authority, the, the quasi government that was established as part of the Oslo Treaties, uh, and basically saying to Israel, well, you, you know, we have this quasi government, but you never gave us a proper state. So now oh, we're going to switch our fight away from trying to establish uh, an, an independent Palestinian state, and instead we'll try and uh, become part of Israel, but with the right to vote for every Palestinian living in the West Bank and in Gaza and East Jerusalem. And that, of course, would create um, a major headache. It would essentially mean the end of the Jewish state, given the demographic realities in that region. Um, but I, I think that is not a step that the Palestinians are anywhere close to taking. I think it's, it, it, that is still, above all, a, a, a tactic, a tool to increase the pressure on Israel and on the international community. And that really is where, according to the Palestinians at least, the beauty of this settlement uh, resolution lies, in that it does not force the Palestinians into a wholesale political change. It means that the, uh, that the success that the Palestinian Authority has had over the last few years in uh, building um, the institutions or in building functioning institutions of a, of a state would not be compromised. It would merely be um, a way of embarrassing Israel, of driving a wedge between Israel and the, and the international community, and so increasing the pressure on Israel to compromise once uh, 
the negotiations take off again. And where does Palestinian public opinion stand on all this? If the Palestinian Authority leadership is under public pressure, what, in which direction is that pressure pushing them? Well, that's very interesting because, uh, indeed, the Palestinians have very, very little faith in these talks. Uh, according to a poll published this week, um, only 6% of Palestinians believe that the peace talks uh, launched in Washington last month will actually uh, yield a result. Um, they, have, uh, they, they were asked also in this poll about uh, what alternatives they prefer, and, um, indeed, their preferred option is... Uh, is going to the UN, trying to get a UN Security Council resolution recognizing uh, an independent Palestinian state. And there's also a lot of support for the idea of, a, uh, of, a, of an unarmed, a non-violent uh, intifada uh, or uprising, um, basically uh, that would presumably take the, the form of uh, demonstrations and peaceful protests. But there is also quite a lot of support for... Um, for the resumption of violence against Israel. And this, of course, has to be something that, that, that worries uh, Palestinian leaders, Israeli leaders, yes. and, and, of course, the international community as well. Yes, well, there's much food for thought there. Tobias, thank you very much. Moving on to the G20 Finance Minister's Summit that uh, will commence in South Korea. Um, the issue which they're going to be dealing with is the future of global currencies, and in particular the danger of competitive devaluations amid the global economic slowdown. Turning now to Christian Oliver in Seoul. How great is the danger of a global currency war with competitive devaluations and countries inadvertently damaging everyone's interests by doing this? Seemingly quite high. Well, the Brazilians, I think, were the first to actually come out and say that there was a danger of a, a, a currency war. People are now trying to, to play it down. And I think what we're going to see at the meeting in, in Gyeongju is a, a sort of mixture of some groups who don't really want to discuss it. And then others are going to fudge it to a point of view where they, they put your foot around the issue to an extent that probably doesn't help uh, avert a war very successfully. Um, we've got, just before this meeting, the Chinese came out very simply and said it would be a wrong direction for the U.S. and other nations aggravated by a weaker renminbi to use the G20 in Dongju as a, as a forum for ganging up against China, um, saying they would upset world markets if they showed such a disunited front. So there's a sense from the Chinese that they don't think the G20 is, a, is an area where these discussions should happen. Then we've got the, uh, the South Koreans who are original, who start the, the draft rolling, really trying to spread the blame and the, the, the range of factors behind currency distortions very much more broadly than simple currency manipulation to help exporters. They themselves, of course, are coming into focus as a country that wants to slap on more capital control. So they're very keen to find wordings and formulas that accept that within the within the G20 form, within the G20 process as well. Um, really, you know, sort of arguing that in a, in a world of ultra-low interest rates with uh, heavy currency speculation, um, carry trades, um, it's very hard for them to look after their own currency. So I think they want to try and um, get some side of... Um, a sign that nations are perhaps uh, warming to the idea of some limited temporary capital controls should be allowed. 
So I think there are quite a lot of competing factions within the, the G20 at the moment. And I'm not sure any of them are going to successfully avert this currency war. And I was going to ask, how great is the pressure on China now to, to revalue the renminbi? Do you think the Americans might at least muster a, a substantial coalition in their favor in the G20 on that issue? That does look like it's growing, T. One of the, the more interesting things is that there hasn't really been a concerted front against China at the G20. I mean, it's, it's often been left in the public sphere to be a rather dualist battle between um, the United States and China. What may be happening now is that other nations, particularly big trading nations with frustrations against China, uh, might come into might come into to play. Um, it's not clear whether we've yet come to a point where there's going to be a more united front than we've seen before uh, against China in G20. Well, Christian, thank you very much for that. Coming back now to Europe, an Italian court has rejected a bid from the Vatican to unfreeze 23 million euros of its funds in what is believed to be the first case of the Vatican, which is, of course, a sovereign state, seeking redress through the Italian judicial system. What on earth is going on? Guy Dimore, can you enlighten us? Well, it is a very confusing affair indeed, but there seem to be two processes at work. One is the Bank of Italy. In recent years, the central bank is tightening up its regulations to combat money laundering in line with the rest of the international community. And on the other hand, it does seem that the, the Vatican Bank itself, which answers really only to itself and to a group of cardinals and the Pope, is also trying to put its accounts in order after a whole series of, of scandals going back to the, the 1980s and, and the famous case of Banco Ambrosiano. And the bank, the Vatican Bank itself has not actually been accused of money laundering, but they're being accused of breaking anti-money laundering regulations. And the reports that are coming out in Italian media today suggest that, in fact, the Italian investigators are spreading the scope of their investigation and have found other suspect transactions that they're worried about. Just how secretive are the Vatican's finances? How much do we know about the way the Catholic Church manages its network of funds around the world? Uh, not a lot. We, the Vatican does publish accounts on the sort of budget of its, of the operations of its government, but it doesn't really publish accounts on on its entire incomes and expenditure around the world. And the Vatican Bank itself, which is known as the Institute for uh, Religious Works, doesn't publish its accounts. So there are estimates, for example, that the Vatican Bank has assets of five billion. Dollars, uh, um, but beyond that, there's, there's not a lot known about it. I mean, I mean, it does operate a sort of worldwide network of, you know, charities, missions, hospitals. After the UN, the Vatican run, runs the world's second biggest aid operations. So it, it it is responsible for parceling out large sums of money. But also, it it has personal accounts for all the Vatican employees, of whom there are thousands priests around the world, and some private individuals who really have sort of tenuous connections with the Vatican. Um, and I think uh, the Italian investigators are beginning to look at priests they suspect of acting as fronts for you know, shady businessmen, prominent people in the Italian world who who have mm. been using, possibly using, this is what is being alleged in the newspaper, the Vatican Bank to recycle money. Mm. 
And what exactly is the legal position on this? It seems very odd that one, at least on paper, sovereign state is appealing to the courts in another sovereign state. Um, How on earth legally is that possible? I think that the reason this has happened this way is that the money that was seized was seized in an Italian bank, Credito Artigiano. And the Vatican Bank was Make, had, had an account at this Italian bank and was making transfers through it. And those transfers were, were deemed to be suspicious, so that account was frozen. So it's an account frozen in an Italian bank by an Italian court. So really, the, the only way for the Vatican then to seek redress was, was through the Italian system. It's not the government of the Vatican as such that has gone to court. It is actually the Vatican bank itself. So... Um, you know, I think a foreign bank can obviously go to an Italian court just like any other foreign bank can. I and mean, there are plenty of foreign banks involved in, in Italian trials at the moment, in fact. So I, I, but what is unusual about this case is that the Vatican, on the whole, has tended, um, I think, to try and avoid the Italian judicial system. And this is believed to be the first case where the Vatican, at, a, at least at, at the level, at a very high level, has decided to seek redress through the Italian courts. Guy, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks to my guests, James Blitz, Tobias Buck, Christian Oliver and Guy Dimmore. World Weekly was produced by Emily Cadman. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.